the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary, covering monetary, economic, and geopolitical news events. It's a perfect world with simple inputs, and there's so much confidence packed into this because there's powerful means put at the disposal of the central bank community. It's no longer a question of what might go wrong. Nobody cares. Well, what could go wrong here? What a silly question to ask. There are tools for every possible outcome, probably tools for market stability, even the case of nuclear war. (laughs) At at, at least there's the, the posturing and the rhetoric to support that. Now here are Kevin Oreck and David McIlvaney. Welcome to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You know, Dave, it's interesting as we go through preparation for war, whatever that looks like, the polarization is really happening. You know, you and I were talking about Just the excluded middle where what we're seeing with comments from our clients, comments from our listeners, uh, just listening to various news sources, uh, there's very little middle ground that's being, you know, approached at this point. Most people are taking sides and it's difficult to find agreement. Are you finding that, uh, you know, as you travel? Well, very much so. I think people like certainty when there is more uncertainty and, and lean more heavily on definitive statements and strong conclusions, uh, even though it might not match the reality, it certainly feels better. Something that I'm finding is people are sending me must-see YouTube so that we can understand what's going on overseas, uh, understand what's going on with China, understand what's going on with Russia and the World Economic Forum. And what's interesting is these must-sees, they don't necessarily agree with each other. So obviously these must-sees, there's got to be something different that uh, I'm not seeing. You know, for about the last 15 years, The Economist has put together a study which is pretty helpful just to see the shifts in numeric terms, in what they consider sort of a measure of democracy. The Economist Intelligence Unit publishes their democracy index, and it shows kind of the direction of individual countries, in particular geographies, you know, an an entire continent, if you will, or, you know, parts of the world. And, you know, that came out this week. And not to anyone's surprise, China and Russia still rank near the bottom, they're in the authoritarian category. Russia is number 124. China is 148. That's out of 167 countries on the index. And, you know, China was once again laid low on its score in the electoral process and pluralism categories, and they're nearly non-existent civil liberties. So you've got this 85-pager, which starts out by saying that the pandemic has accelerated a creeping authoritarianism on a global basis, and you only have 21 countries that remain in the full democracy category. <laughs> it's a really fascinating thing. And I'll bet the U.S. is not on that list. That's right. It's in the flawed democracy category, which is a separate category. And so it does not even make the full democracy list. That didn't prevent the U.S. from holding two summits for democracy at the end of 2021, uh, which, which, according to the report, elicited cynicism in, in many parts of the world. So, again, the, the report goes back over the last 15 years, and at least 108 of these 167 countries have recorded a decline in their index scores through that time frame or have just stagnated. And this is a trend worth watching. The study describes how the last two years, again, going back to COVID, has impacted the way people experience freedom and the way they engage with government. So the COVID strictures, the shutdowns, the mandates. And post-COVID, it remains to be seen what citizens will expect and what they'll acquiesce to. And we often talk about governments taking away our freedoms, but honestly, there's a new form of government. I mean, has technocracy, this rise of technocracy and Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, has that had an impact on freedoms? Yeah, there's, uh, it seems a coincidence in, in the decline in democracy and, and, and the rise of technocracy. Technocracy being, again, sort of your non-elected elites, those who are PhD certified in in some particular skill set, and as experts in their field, are willing to bring bureaucratic prowess in ways that that no one else could. 
And yeah, so I think there is this correlation between the decline in democracy and the rise in technocrats. Does globalization and the deglobalization process, does the deglobalization relate or correlate with this decline in democracy? Perhaps, at least insofar as the unseen hand of the market is, is being displaced by the seen hand of an expert administrative class. And, and this administrative class is sort of driven off of idiosyncratic interests and agendas. Free speech has been such an important part of democracy. You know, our founding fathers, that was one of the main things. So, you know, we talk about controlling the people. Uh, technocracy can control free speech. But you think about some things that are probably more concrete, like food and energy. If you can control the debate between people and information, and then you can control food and you can control energy, uh, what else is there? I mean, you at that point, you've got full control. <laughs> Well, Henry Kissinger once said, control oil and you control nations, control food and you control people. And I think that comment captures both the risks of energy dependency, as we saw play out in the 1970s oil embargo, that era. And now as we see it play out in Europe, uh, but most critically, the roots of political and social stability are now in play with food insecurity and higher rates of inflation impacting households around the world. This issue of unfilled bellies in, in certain geographies becomes kind of a flashpoint for social instability as, as we move forward. Inflation to many of us is largely an inconvenience. So if you look at inflation in the developed world, yes, it's a source of agitation, but that's what it is at its worst. Maybe it's an instigator for political change, uh, but it's very much a, a bigger deal elsewhere. Yeah. So this, you know, this brings to mind what you're talking about, this democracy index. And I'm not sure exactly how it's measured, but, you know, you and I have talked in the past of Frederick Bastiat's book, The Law. And one of the things that he talks about are basic God-given rights, the, the right to life, the right to liberty, the right to private property, to be able to own and not have to have something stolen from you. So, you know, this decline Food is really probably one of the primary needs, you know, between air, water and food. Uh, if you are seeing a decline in food availability, there's going to be submission to some sort of system if uh, if a person's to eat. Well, and it's always important to keep in mind the basis of law, right? I mean, you know, we take these truths to be self-evident. When we start talking about law in the context of the United States, it really is with this idea that rights come from someplace else. They're, they're, they're not granted to us by government, as in today you have them and tomorrow we can take them away, but they're implicit to the organizational structure of society. If you start with a basic unit of, of, of society, family, and build out of that, um, states, nations, you can see that there's, there's this implicit, uh, at least that's the way it's written into our constitution is, is that it's implicit, right? And, and it's not the case everywhere. So, you know, we reflect on the democracy index and, and the gradual decline of the index scores through time. And, you know, one of these things that, you know, is a very powerful variable um, we should watch here in the next few years is something as basic as food flow. Mm -hmm. Food flow is a powerful variable to keep in mind. Without food security, you cannot have political stability. Mm -hmm. With food insecurity comes the opportunity for unscrupulous actors to consolidate power, to leverage circumstances towards social control, and, and to, in essence, rewrite the laws. It'll be interesting to compare the 2021 Democracy Index scores, which just came out, with those of 2022. We will be even further past COVID and in the wake of the Ukraine-Russia crisis, assuming that too has passed. Uh, if it is not, you know, the marginal loss of food will have significant geopolitical ramifications. Right now, we're talking about a very short-term issue, if this is a short-term problem. But if it extends very far, <laughs> this is, it's a game changer. Well, let's talk about that short-term problem. I mean, year by year, the crops make a, a big, big difference. So short-term can become a real long-term issue. What 
is the impact on Russia in Ukraine as far as, you know, just food security for the world? The U.S. Farm Bureau summarized a number of Russian and Ukrainian inputs, which leave you wondering about food security in the coming months. As much as Germany has had to ponder their energy security, you've got Russia and Ukraine that are major food producers. On one measure, they're responsible for generating 10% of all global calories. If you think about that, that's kind of a big deal. Uh, Ukraine exports $27 billion in ag products. Europe takes about $7.6 billion of that. China takes $4.2 billion. India takes $2 billion of Ukrainian imports. Egypt, $1.5 billion. Ukraine, $1.5 billion as well. And so this is the basic stuff. This is corn. This is uh, sunflower seeds. Oil, actually. Sunflower oil. Wheat. Rapeseed, again, for oil, barley, sunflower meal. How this conflict unfolds in the coming weeks is critical because nature has its cycles and they can't really be flexed or changed. In past history, you know, it was known that kings went to war in the springtime, but farming oftentimes was disrupted. So a lot of times war in the past would be organized around, first of all, getting the crops planted and in between harvest, what have you. At this point, if you've got Russia and Ukraine fighting, are they actually going to be planting normal crops? I mean, are the farmers actually going out to the fields and doing normal business? Well, you mentioned springtime. This is one of the fascinating things about Ukraine. This morning, we were leaving my in-laws ranch in South Texas and big rainstorms came through and we went out the wrong gate. We had to turn around and, you know, there was some concern that we weren't going to make it out of the field because you get off the road and it gets muddy real fast. And we had four wheel drive. It's a big truck. It's no big deal. But this is what is being faced right now in Ukraine. Things are softened up. It's springtime. You look at those big, long lines of troop carriers and tanks. They can't get off the roads. Otherwise, you're talking about a big, muddy mess. A part of their logistical constraints have been being limited to roadways. And so, you know, spring is cropping up in in very interesting ways. What happens from April to May is really critical back to the food issue, April to May, because you have planting, with the exception of wheat and rapeseed, which were planted in the fall and are growing now, farmers have to put something in the ground. Hmm. And as you know, you you plant and then you wait. And the planting season is this frenetic and focused season. And of course, just as the harvest season is just as intense, but it's, you know, a few months later. The question of whether the planning season will receive a focused effort in the context of war is very consequential, right? So if we can fast forward to the autumn harvest, and it's just too far away to matter at this point, but the planting season is nearly here, and it becomes material. It becomes material if farmers are fighting and not planting, because Ukraine is the seventh largest producer of corn in the world. They're the eighth largest producer of wheat. And you've got these concentrated exports that are going to countries that need that food, can't produce it on their own, and are going to have a hard time finding it elsewhere or paying premiums to get it from someplace else. Think of Egypt, think of Indonesia, think of Turkey, think of Pakistan, think of Morocco. These are some of your big trade partners with Ukraine. And if it doesn't get planted, It's not going to get harvested. And now we're not talking about food inflation in the spring of 2022. We're talking about an extended issue throughout the year and into next year. Russia, of course, massively outranks Ukraine in terms of wheat production. They're a 20% producer. Total global wheat production, 20% of it comes from Russia. (laughs) So it'll be interesting to see, you know, the more pressure we put on them, how much do they constrain their exports and and, and sort of maintain a focus on feeding Russians first? You combine the two, you combine Russia and Ukraine, and a third of all the world's wheat comes from these two countries. Wow. Um, Wow. Ukraine is the world's largest producer of sunflower seeds, uh, 47% of global exports. And you say, well, you know, that many people driving around chewing on sunflower seeds. I do when I go on long distance road trips. Absolutely. But this is more of, again, the the sunflower seed oil, which ends up being critical for anyone who's 
cooking basic food stuff. So, you know, you're not talking about microwave dinners in India and most of China and Iraq. You're talking about cooking the old fashioned way on top of your stove. And that's where a lot of these exports go. India, China and Iraq are the top three. You know, I think of the conversation we've had many times, Dave, about the need for reserves, because when one shoe drops, oftentimes another shoe drops and then another shoe drops. And what I'm thinking right now is we've got these supply disruptions that are going on, whether it's COVID or whether it's uh, war in Eastern Europe. But you also have at the same time 10 to 12 years of easy monetary policy that built inflation into the mix. And you've talked oftentimes that inflation is felt first by the poor and inflation and starvation, unfortunately, oftentimes go together. Yeah, I mean, at the margins of food security are the Ukrainians, first of all, because they're in the middle of the conflict. And then you've got China, India, Egypt and Turkey, the the countries that are trading with Ukraine. I leave out Europe, even though they're the largest trade partner with Ukraine for foodstuffs, only because there's greater latitude with Europe to source alternatives and they can pay higher prices. So, I mean, certainly inflation is a concern for all of these countries, but the threshold of despair, as you described it, Kevin, it's reached sooner amongst countries with sizable and fragile social classes, less robust household income. If it's true that lower classes are more negatively impacted by inflation, regardless of the economy, then I think it's also true that lesser developed countries are more at risk when you have uh, rising food costs or, you know, less supply available. And sometimes it can sound cold when you talk almost like Machiavelli and you know, the writer of The Prince. But Machiavelli was an interesting read. You and I both read it at the same time talking just about the practicality of the wielding of power and how it can be kept and how it can be maneuvered. And so, you know, lest anyone think that while we're talking on this commentary, we're not sensitive to the actual emotion and pressures that's going on worldwide. We are. And, uh, you know, we apply that to prayer and thought and all the human things that we can do. But from a Machiavellian point of view, and I think of Henry Kissinger a little bit in that view, you know, when he's looking at world politics and diplomacy, Kissinger for 60 years has been operable with that kind of mindset. I think he would talk about food security and energy security more like a chess player plays on a chessboard, wouldn't you? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. And he, and he points to that energy security and food security. We already know the dependency on Russian energy. Right. Russia is the third largest oil producer in the world, second largest natural gas producer. Uh, A lot of those exports, obviously, uh, Germany is dependent upon. And these exports fund a third of Russian government revenue. So this is there's a big part of their governmental structure, national income. And thus far, they have not been restricted. So the flows of oil are going out, the flows of dollars and euros and everything else are coming back in. Trade surpluses have exploded higher the first quarter. (laughs) These are actually rich days for the oligarchs. I mean, Hmm. we can think about, oh, we're really putting the screws to these guys. Perhaps they can't spend it all at Harrods or they can't easily traipse around Paris, you know, scurrying from Louis Vuitton to Chanel to Hermes. (laughs) But the cash flows are robust. The coffers are quickly filling. March is going to likely break all previous records for trade and exports for Russia, having combined the two elements of higher energy prices on the one hand and very robust global demand on the other. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, petroleum plays a key role in food production. Uh, I was talking to a farmer client of mine, and he said, you wouldn't believe the cost of fertilizer right now, nitrogen. And so we've got this overlap. We talk about food and energy, but sometimes there's a direct overlap, isn't there? Oh, yeah. And the volatility is unreal in that area. I mean, one area of dependency is is where the food and fuel come together, fertilizer, Russia is a significant producer of your three major fertilizers. Uh, Those supplies are in question as Russia reviews non-energy exports. So again, maybe they hold back some of their fertilizer exports. Maybe they hold back some of their food exports. And that has ripple effects into other countries in terms of their, their political and social stability. But if you're thinking about fertilizer in particular, nitrogen in particular, it's pressured by rising energy costs. 70 to 90% of the cost of nitrogen for it's come from natural gas. 
<laughs> so Russia, as I mentioned earlier, is number two for natural gas in terms of production right behind the U.S. And this is where, you know, 2021 to 2022, our hard asset strategies have benefited, not only from exposure to oil and gas, but also fertilizers. There's now a huge job for us at hand in terms of risk mitigation because the volatility in, in all of these sectors is unreal. Well, the volatility and just the cost of keeping up with inflation. I mean, if food is food's got to be one of the most basic things that we need to watch as far as prices increasing. And a lot of times we look at what's going on in the United States and we forget the rest of the world. What was it that I read recently that year on year food inflation worldwide? It's over 18 percent, isn't it? Yeah. So it's it. I mean, we like to reference CPI and PPI, um, consumer price index and producer price index. We know that those are baskets and each of the components in the basket is given a weighting. And so you can play with the weightings to adjust what the final number is in some of that gamesmanship. I mean, we've had the baskets and the weightings and the way that CPI is calculated from the 1980s. It's changed just shy of 20 times since 1980. So, I mean, we think, oh, well, inflation was X percent in the, in the 1970s and eighties and it's a lot less now. Well, yeah, yeah, we've changed how we count it close to 20 times, and it's gotten smaller and smaller deliberately as we go. It's interesting. The UN puts together a couple of different measures for inflation, specifically for food. They're not trying to strip anything out um, because, again, what they're looking at is sort of, again, social stability and some of the things that, that tie into political regime continuity. The UN Food and Agriculture Organization measures food inflation in a variety of baskets. They've got the food price index, the FFPI, suggests that the Russian-Ukrainian crisis is now extending globally, uh, you know, likely to continue this sort of negative influence as it impacts the prices of wheat and corn, sunflower oil. If you look from January to February this year, that index is up 3.9% just in one month. And and the year-over-year change, February to February, 18.7%. Wow. And the UN, again, this is the Food and Agriculture Organization, they measure cereal prices. Again, this is just back to the basic stuff that goes into (laughs) what you probably had for breakfast, what I had for breakfast this morning. It's up 12.9% year-over-year. Vegetable oil prices up 34.5%. And vegetable oil covers a lot of things. You know, we talked about sunflower and soy and, and, uh, and a whole variety of things go into that mix. Call it 35%. These things begin wow. to add up. And it's safe to assume that food prices are continuing higher for at least a little while. And so we're going to break one direction or another. I mean, we've talked before, revolution can break either the way the French Revolution broke or it can break the way the American Revolution broke back a few hundred years ago with the deterioration of democracy that you were talking about a little bit earlier. When people are hungry, oftentimes they'll look to a dictator to solve the problem, won't they? Yeah, the countries that can least afford the increases are going to face the most stress politically. And so that represents either protest or a large request for the strong hand of government. And might that suggest that 2022 is the year of the coup? Possibly. We're already seeing deterioration in the democracy index. Would it be a surprise to see autocrats seek greater control, even as citizens voice greater frustration and maybe even bring their protests to the street? You're either going to fight those protests, you're going to harness the energy that's on the streets for your own ends. Voices is perhaps the only thing that's going to keep 22 from being the year of the coup. And voice, I mean, you know, people having the opportunity to express themselves to the extent that dissent is, is, is squashed. I think you've got significant issues, uh, really explosive political dynamics where you don't allow for voice to be recognized. Well, do you think people really feel that their voice is recognized right now? I mean, we talked about technocracy. I mean, if we say something wrong on this YouTube channel, they can just cut us off. 
Twitter, the same type of thing. Facebook, the same type of thing. And then, of course, there's the dictatorial governments that do, you know, like China. They'll just cut you off if you don't say something positive about them all the time. But you remember that book by Hirschman that uh, you had recommended that I read called Exit Voice and Loyalty that just, I mean, you can see it in any human endeavor, whether it's a company or a country. You need to feel like you either have a voice or there has to be loyalty to the company or the country, or people will just find a way of exit. And exit can look like a lot of different types of things. Uh, Hirschman's book was very insightful in a period of time where people need to feel like they have a voice. I think it's a must read. I think it's a classic. And if you're looking at it from the standpoint of family dynamics, or office dynamics, or country dynamics, it provides a reasonable model for release of social pressure. So voice is, you know, dissent. It's expression of opinion or opposition. And unfortunately, as you suggested, it's being managed on a tighter and tighter basis, both by government and non-governmental private party interests. So as censorship increases, what ends up happening is social anger proliferates, Hmm. you know, lacking the classic first form of pressure release all of a sudden, it's bottled up energy, which again becomes, uh, in my opinion, dangerous. So when we consider the long-term implications of censorship, whether that's Twitter or Facebook, those come to mind, but the media is more and more a channel of suppression. It's worth reflecting on the social response to suppression, the unintended consequences of it. You think, well, we're winning the story by controlling the narrative. Narrative control may have its benefits, but it's ill-advised to reduce free speech and freedom of expression without substituting a new valve for release. Well, how about loyalty? Okay, loyalty, is that something that a company or a country can lean on when they don't give voice? It just depends on the environment you're in because loyalty, you know, certainly if there's brand loyalty, you can lean on it pretty heavily. But, you know, this is where in a world of bad reviews, you go from having 55 star reviews to having 52 star reviews and loyalty all of a sudden changes, uh, mm-hmm. maybe not because of your direct experience, but because of your vicarious experience. And that's just at the level of brands. If you're talking about politics, loyalty is not a reliable factor to lean on all the time, particularly in a period of contentious or partisan politics. Uh, <laughs> that's kind of period where we are now. And as we discussed a few weeks ago with reference to the University of Michigan surveys, faith in institutions is waning. So politicians, I don't think, can rely on that rail either. So that brings us to exit. So we started with voice. All right. And then we talked about loyalty. But if those two fail, there is an exit. Now, the question would be, where is the exit to? I mean, I guess we could look at the extreme right now, the exit of the Ukrainians into Poland. Uh, we've got friends that are missionaries in Poland, and they're taking in uh, Ukrainian exiles right now. So that is a I, I guess that's a very, like I said before, concrete form of exit. But exit can take on many forms as well. Well, you're right. And I've, I've got friends who are living in Portugal uh, who are taking in uh a family from Ukraine as well. Exit of one sort or another is also limited. Where do you go? You may not have all of your options open. And it's not just a move away from something. And obviously, we can see what that looks like moving away from a war zone. But it's also moving towards something. Where are you going? I think voice is still the preferred. If I looked at those three, it's the easiest to facilitate. And so it it really makes no sense why today we would be limiting it at all. Voice is preferred over both loyalty and exit, and yet voice is being constrained. And I don't think that's going to be without consequence. So boiling agitations, ever polarized perspectives, you know, it's not working uh, shutting off voice because we don't live in an age where loyalty is 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 that clear that dedicated or 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 dear and exit there's there's not that many options if you think about it this is where the confusion comes in. You know, I was talking about the must-see videos that are out there right now. And you know, people have great points in a lot of different directions. I mean, do I want to see the World Economic Forum get their way? No. Do I see Putin and China as being possibly the way that the World Economic Forum doesn't get their way, which means I should cheer for Putin and China? See, <laughs> we, we've got we've got a lot of conflicting things going on right now. And you've got modern-day prophets who are saying this, and you've got people who want to rule the world saying that 
This is where I think we have to be careful that we don't exclude the middle. You look at both sides and say, well, this can't be completely black. It cannot be completely white because we can slip very quickly into the hands of a dictator if we think that we're slipping away from the hands of another. You know, I I turned on a podcast the other day and I started listening to this gentleman. He was raised in the U.S., um, educated at the University of Arizona and did his Ph.D., I forget where, but spent probably 25 years as a heavy metal rock star in China. And today runs this blog here in the U.S. I've never heard anyone more articulate in terms of Chinese politics. Hmm. And I mean, it, it's kind of coincidental that he was a heavy metal rock star, Ph.D. in political science. And, and he just happens to <laughs> again, it's, it's whatever, yeah. almost not worth mentioning. But I'm listening to him and I'm listening to him interview three or four different academics from East Coast, West Coast schools. And I realize there's so much more detail as it relates to China and the Chinese political structure that I know nothing about. And if we really appreciated how little we know about anything, all of our opinions would be tempered and all of our temper tantrums would be turned down, turned off. We get so heated and so angry about things that we know absolutely nothing about. Nothing. And it was just, it was a reminder as, as, as these guys started getting into the weeds, I mean, really into the weeds, <laughs> it was totally humbling, totally humbling. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, look, Dave, look at the last 10 years. I mean, are you the same guy that you were 10 years ago? Or no, was no, he the qualified. same guy 10 years before? I'm, no. I'm embarrassed about things that I thought I, very strongly about 10 years ago right. now that I've learned more. But, but, you know, someone suggests, we actually had a client suggest this the other day that China and Russia represent the antidote to the globalizers from the World Economic Forum, that they represent sort of a, some sort of a truer font of freedom in a world driven towards idealisms of all varieties. Hmm. And I just thought, that is pure insanity. That is pure hmm. insanity. And maybe this is what is meant by the fog of war. No one really sees clearly in the confusion and chaos of conflict. Do they represent an anti-something? compared to the WEF? Sure. But again, I, I don't think anyone sees real clearly in the confusion and chaos of conflict. Yeah, but isn't it funny? We think we do. We think we see clearly at, at times. Well, we're grasping to understand reality. And, and the harder it is to grasp, maybe the harder we try and the more committed we are to our conclusions, even if they're too colored over with emotion. If you go back to the Epic of Gilgamesh, for all time there has been, I mean, we're talking thousands of years here, a common theme from then to now has been a drive to city build, Mm -hmm. to unify, to homogenize. So you've got the autocratic versions of that city building expressed by Putin and Xi. And that's not an antidote to the Klaus Schwab version of city building. They're both city builders. Everybody thinks they've got the right answer. Everybody builds their own city to say, you know, we built this city. Well, I guess since you brought up rock and roll before, I guess we can't we can't forget that. But, you know, everybody feels like they're building their own city as the solution. So it's, if it's the World Economic Forum, we're told you will own nothing and be happy. That's the city that they want to build. Yeah, but it's, you know, that's kind of like the Gramsci inversion. And, and maybe it's easier to resent Gramsci. It's more subtle. There's some manipulation. There's undercurrents of control, uh, but it's less obvious. Hmm. But, you know, if you look at the score again on that, on that democracy index, 124 for uh, Russia, 148 for China. That says something. That says something about the lack of political engagement, about the lack of due process, about the lack of freedom of expression, about the lack of general civil liberties. So to resent manipulation and control is one thing. I get it. You may not like the Gramsci inversion, but to ignore domination and control and treat it as a superior alternative. (laughs) When I heard the client say that, I just I thought that that carries with it a tragic forgetfulness. 
a very dangerous form of 20th century amnesia. We talked about the duration, like this incursion can take with Putin being in in Ukraine and how long Russia can actually pay its debts. You brought up last week that uh, we had a critical maturity coming. Uh, Did Russia step up to the plate? Did they pay their debt when that maturity came? All but two issues. So the majority of last week's bond obligations were paid by the Russians. Financial Times reported that two were not. And so now we enter the 30-day grace period. Uh, You've got sanctions, which are kind of like a state's way of of playing the game of chicken. You engage your opponent in in a bet. You're matching willpower and determination and maybe even matching pain thresholds to see who can tolerate the changes and some of those changes, some, some of those sanctions end up having a boomerang effect. Uh, it can come back to you. But the big concern is with the $150 billion in private sector obligations that, that Russian companies have. These are loans and bonds of corporations that are denominated in other currencies. So when the ruble loses 50% of its value, because it has to be paid back in the foreign currency, the burden to pay back that debt in foreign currency terms on a 50% devaluation increases by 100%. So the incentive to default increases. And this is a curious case of Western countries actually putting their own financial operators at risk vicariously through the sanctions. Because see, who owns that $150 billion in debt? A lot of it is US banks, Hmm. financial asset owners, you know, European banks. And so when, when we increase the probability of default, who does it hurt worse? The Russians who no longer can gain access to the credit markets? You look at the, the history of, of, of sovereign defaults, and actually it's only a few years before you're allowed to come back. In some instances, there's no time lag at all before all is forgiven, all is forgotten, and bankers are willing to lend again. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Argentina. Well, Argentina. Argentina. That's right. That's right. <laughs> right. The countries yeah. in Central America that tried to honor their obligations were the ones that suffered the most over the longest period of time versus just defaulting and walking away. Right. Maybe it's a little bit different with corporations, but I doubt it. I doubt it. So, again, there is a curious case of financial operators being put at risk. U.S. financial operators and European financial operators and banks being put at risk through these sanctions. So are the sanctions going to have teeth or no teeth? That's the question. Will the sanctions be effective? Clearly, the devaluation, which has already occurred, suggests they are very effective. Although, who's it impacting the most? It's highly impactful for all Russians. We know that with the devaluation, there's no way of of, of avoiding the cost. Just life is all of a sudden much more expensive. But as we've talked about in terms of food security, there are a growing list of people who are, you know, uh, fodder, if you will, in, 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 in this process. It's not just the perpetrators of chaos that are caught up in it, uh, but there's some unintended consequences here, too. One of the things that we've been able to do is run a world with no interest here this last decade. Uh, virtually no interest, artificially low interest on all government debt, even corporate debt. I mean, yeah, junk bonds paying what treasuries used to pay, you know, recently. But with rates increasing, I, I mean, I think about Russia having to pay back with the devaluation of the ruble. That devaluation is costing them twice as much when they pay back their debts on bonds. But All of us are going to be paying a lot more, including our own government, if rates continue to increase. And they have to. I mean, the the Taylor rule, we've talked about it. You've got to have interest rates at some point that are above the inflation rate or you have a runaway inflation uh, environment. So with rates rising, what is going to be the change as we move forward? Yeah, this is the hope and prayer. This is the hope and prayer of central bankers is that inflation comes back down and they can look at a much more modest number implied by the Taylor rule. Instead of a 9% number, maybe it's Larry Summers at 5%. Maybe it's James Bullard from the St. Louis Fed at 3%. But rates, probably the most consequential change from last week came from Jerome Powell, who finally took us in a different direction. We've been almost you know three plus years, 39 months since an increase in rates and massive expansion and balance sheet. So you had two people step out last week and make a significant shift. Consequential change came from Jerome Powell and also from Liu He, Vice Premier and 
Xi Jinping's top economic advisor. Liu He intervened in last week's market meltdown. I mean, we watch the indicators on a daily basis, Kevin, and, and, and to see the meltdown occurring in Chinese bonds, where just as recently as September, a bond is yielding 6% and now it's yielding 30%. Hmm. Wow. Or a bond that, I mean, we've talked about Evergrande, bond yielding 60%, which is pretty darn bad, now yielding greater than 100%. I mean, you're talking about a complete financial meltdown in the developer bond segment, and it's growing, right? We started to see technology shares sell off. You had declines of between 30 and 50% in one week. Chinese equities were basically moving towards uh, a, a nasty, nasty outcome. And so you have verbal intervention in the middle of week, in the middle of the market meltdown. It reverses prices dramatically in Chinese equities, brings the corporate debt markets back from the brink. I mean, they're still ugly. They're just not as ugly as they were. So on a relative basis, they've improved. On an absolute basis, they still look like the walking dead. Powell's impact was less dramatic, but it was still truly meaningful as he reversed a three-year course of easy money. Interest mm. rates have been artificially suppressed that entire time. Federal Reserve balance sheet has more than doubled to accomplish that feat from $4 trillion to just shy of $9 trillion on the balance sheet. Ironically, <laughs> last week he's talking about ending QE, shrinking the, the Fed balance sheet, and increasing interest rates, and yet he did add something like $43 billion to the balance sheet last week. So, you know, Watch what they do, not necessarily what they say. Will they ultimately shrink the balance sheet? I think that's the plan. <laughs> At least that's that's the, the job-owning part, the verbal part. Now to normalize the balance sheet and the interest rate market will be easy, we're told. We're told. And inflation hmm. is going to be manageable. And it's expected to return to low levels quite soon, <laughs> they say. <laughs> they say. And the economy is strong and expected to remain strong for some time. That's the position that they hold. And of course, employment is low and may in fact go lower. That is what is believed. It's a perfect world. It's a perfect world with simple inputs. And there's so much confidence packed into this because there's powerful means put at the disposal of the central bank community. It's no longer a question of what might go wrong. Nobody cares. Kevin, this is what's remarkable. Well, what could go wrong here? What a silly question to ask. What an absolutely ridiculous notion. There are tools for every possible outcome, probably tools for market stability, even the case of nuclear war. <laughs> at, at, at least there's the, the posturing and the rhetoric to support that. Dave, you've done many dangerous things, but have you ever been with somebody who's with you who does not understand the danger and everything they're saying has to do with everything being fine and no, this is no problem. I've done this many times. And you know that you need to get out of the situation because the person is either deluded, insane, or lying. Remember when you brought up the recession, nine out of the last 11 tightening cycles. Who was it that was talking about that? Alan Blinder. Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds to me like it doesn't match what Powell is saying at all. Well, my good friend, Jerry Root, um, who introduced me to Tomas Sedlicek, actually, if you look at the introduction to Sedlicek's book, he, he thanks Jerry for letting him finish the book in his basement there in Chicago. Hmm. Jerry Root used to say, there's two kinds of people in the world, the people who are goofy and know they're goofy, and the people who are goofy and don't know it. And, yeah. and it's that latter category that's dangerous. And that, that's, that's the reality is, is self-knowledge is something that's so important to living life well, but also not damaging other people's lives as much as we would otherwise. And this goes back to the ancient Greeks. Uh, I don't even know how to pronounce it. I just know how to spell it. G-N-O-T-H-I, Gnathai Siaton, S-E-A-T-O-N, Know Thyself. Know thyself. Know thyself. It's a theme that gets played out throughout history in tragic ways. Right. And, and, and that, I think, is one of the things that is, is missing. There is an assumption about who we are and the way we operate and what we can accomplish. And it lacks a bit of 
realistic self-knowledge, self-reflection. Well, talk about Goofy. Remember what Bernanke said right before the global financial crisis? Yeah. It almost sounds like what Powell's talking about right now. Exactly. The Federal Reserve is not currently forecasting a recession. That was January 10th, 2008. So you go back yeah. to the global financial crisis. We're on the, on the cusp of one of the worst financial debacles we've seen in U.S. or global financial market history. And the Federal Reserve chief, Ben Bernanke, says the Federal Reserve is not currently forecasting a recession. And they're not forecasting a recession today either. Most of the time, you'd be right in not forecasting a recession. But just before a recession occurs, you'd hope that you know a cadre of 600 PhDs can see something developing. And so we go back to that blinder comment from last week on the commentary. Nine out of 11 tightening cycles preceded recessions. You start to tighten money and credit, and there is an impact in the financial markets. There's an impact in the economy. The only two exceptions, 66 and 44, were unlike the current circumstance. Today, we have higher inflation, which translates in combination with financial tightening <laughs> to a virtual guarantee of recession. And, and, then you have, and then you have yield curve inversions as further confirmation of recession just around the bend. But nobody at the Federal Reserve is talking about it. It's not currently forecast. Yeah, and for the person who's listening who maybe doesn't watch yield curves all the time, it's just there's a simple statement that a short-term interest rate should not be as high as a long-term interest rate. And when the short-term interest rates exceed long-term interest rates, that's almost always a signal of recession. That's right. So yield curve inversions, you've got the three years. This is, again, U.S. Treasuries. The three years are above the 10. The five years are above the 10. The seven years are above the 10. The sevens were actually the first to flip last week hmm. in terms well. of the inversion, which was kind of interesting. The threes are above the fives. So with history showing a clear path towards recession, again, coming back to this notion of tightening cycles preceding recessions. And now you've got the yield curve providing corresponding data to support that conclusion. All you can conclude is that market apathy is unreal. <laughs> market? Oh, are you describing a market where, okay, let me just put some words in the mouths of maybe some of the listeners right now. It's like, yes, 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 yes. Okay, so you talk about war, you talk about recession, you talk about inflation, you talk about food shortages. You guys are just a bunch of naysayers. I'm staying in the stock market. It's always paid off. I don't see at all where you're going to be right on the market. Now, obviously... I'm overstating this, but we've got a lot of people that we talk to who are like, you know, yeah, it looks bad from one respect, but I sure like the returns that I've had in the stock market the last four or five years. So what's your thought on that? Is that apathy, well, Dave, or is it? Uh, are they just being pragmatic? Returns are based on your purchase price. Right? So if you underpay for an asset, you're going to make money. If you overpay for an asset, you're going to lose money. There's no two ways around it. Like valuation matters because the trajectory of your personal returns are based on what you paid for the asset. So unless you're a trader in and out in two seconds, value matters. How is it that the S&P 500, the Dow are less than 10% from all time highs with war in Europe, with recession in the US around the quarter, with a Chinese financial system that requires a do whatever it takes promise from the powers that be, <laughs> I mean, this is apathy that I don't know has ever been measured in, in, in this scope and scale. Okay, so let's talk about interest rates, because oftentimes interest rates are signaling what people see ahead. And uh, I was talking to Morgan, uh, one of the analysts that you have working for McIlvaney Wealth Management, Dave, and he said, you know, built right into the interest rates is the knowledge that they're not going to be able to continue to raise rates for long before dropping them back again. What do you say to that? Uh, where we see higher interest rates right now, but with the thought that there's no way the Federal Reserve is going to be able to continue and, I guess, man up to the interest rate that we have to have to match inflation. Yeah. So Bullard suggests that that is the head of the St. Louis Fed suggests that rates should be north of 3% by year end. Larry Summers raises that number to 5%. I mean, indeed, they need to be higher than that to tame the inflation beast. We've talked about the Taylor rule and what that implies about interest rates, the Fed funds being upwards of 9% to tame inflation as we know it today. So last week, we go from this range of zero to a quarter of 1%. That 
again, we're like locked on the floor, zero to a quarter of 1%, 25 basis points, to a new range of 25 to 50 basis points, a quarter percent to half a percent. That was last week. The question remains if there would be an impact in the financial markets from, let's just take Bullard's number, 3%. So if, if we're currently at max 50 basis points, adding 250 basis points to get us to three, <laughs> this gets interesting. What does that cost? Yeah, what does that cost? Jim Grant points out that only $23.7 trillion of our federal debt is held by the public. Right. So Only. Only. Interest rates, yeah. at, well, instead of the 30, reduce it back to what, what is owned by the public and, and what is going to be impacted by an increase in rates. So interest rate increases only really impact that portion. And he says that each percentage point increase boosts the treasury's servicing costs by $237 billion. For a sense of scale, total government spending on veteran benefits and services amounted to $236.3 billion last year. So thanks, Jim. But mm. you, know, you look at Bullard's goal, and it implies a gradual shift in interest costs weighing in at Again, 2.5% from here, that's almost $600 billion in added annual interest expense. And I mean, I, I like Larry Summers in some respects, but I'm not exactly sure how we raise the Fed funds rate to 5% as prescribed. Not sure that even that is enough to tame inflation, but do you know what the cost is? I mean, you're talking about an extra trillion dollars in interest expense to do what he's talking about and this is why you have to call this they are completely cut between a rock and a hard place that they've created themselves because as you increase interest rates to fight inflation you're not going to be able to tax all that from the people and so if you can't tax it from the people you're going to have to print it well that creates more inflation which means you have to raise interest rates more so that you can fight inflation raise interest rates that you have to pay on that debt and then you have to print more money, which raises inflation. I, I could go on and on and on. That's just sort of a it's a repeating feedback loop, Dave, that ends. I don't know. How does it end poorly? Well, it does, because as we mentioned earlier, it really is just taking the oxygen out of the room. And you can't expect to operate at a more powerful level with less oxygen. <laughs> It's just, as as an athlete, it's something I'm sensitive to. When you start competing at 10,000 feet or you're you're climbing a mountain and you're 14,000 feet, the air is thin. You can't push it as hard. And yet we want to push the economy as hard as we ever have, right? You just can't. You can't. Yes, there'll be a consequence in asset prices. And to Morgan's point, the bond market is far more wise they have the ability to see the future a little bit more clearly than the equity market. And at this point, the bond market would say, yeah, rates will come up before they come down again, because you can't possibly bear the toll of a half a trillion dollars or a trillion dollars in added interest expense. That's a reality that is too much to bear. So the markets can try to ignore a war in Europe. The markets can try to ignore the beginning of a tightening cycle and what that implies in terms of recession. They can ignore overvaluation in a variety of asset classes. But to the degree that they do, they're simply living, that is the participants in this marketplace are living in fantasy land. You've been listening to the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. I'm Kevin Oreck along with David McIlvaney. You can find us at McIlvaney.com, M-C-A-L-V-A-N-Y.com. And you can call us at 800-525-9556. This has been the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. The views expressed should not be considered to be a solicitation or a recommendation for your investment portfolio. You should consult a professional financial advisor to assess your suitability for risk and investment. Join us again next week for a new edition of the McIlvaney Weekly Commentary. <laughs>